Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. My name is Chris Dolman and today it's my pleasure to talk with Catherine Linton. Catherine is the Program Manager for the Australian Childhood Foundation in Tasmania. She holds a Bachelor of Social Work and a Master of Counselling and has been working in the mental health sector for 20 years or so. Catherine's experience has included both clinical interventions and leadership in trauma therapy for children, adolescents and adults, disaster recovery, child protection, older persons care, community development, mental health and education, suicide postvention and child and adolescent mental health. And I uh, first met Catherine via a webinar we were doing together presented by Emerging Minds and Child Family Community Australia on the theme of recognising complex trauma in infants and children. And I was really interested in having a further conversation with Catherine about her work. So welcome to our podcast series, Catherine. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Catherine, I know you have a particular interest in complex developmental trauma. So could we just begin, you know, even in everyday terms, what is complex developmental trauma and what is it about this area of practice that interests you? Thanks so much, Chris. It is such a complex area and it really is a pleasure to be able to speak to you about it. And before I talk to it, I would like to acknowledge that the ideas and themes and topics that I have are based on Western science and don't fully encapsulate the cultural knowledge of our First Nations people and the impact of trauma. But complex developmental trauma, in terms of how I understand it, is it's where children have had exposure to multiple traumatic events over a prolonged period of time. And that might be experiences of neglect, abuse, or exposure to domestic violence. And these traumas often occur in the context of a relationship with the child or infant's important caregiver, for example, a parent or a foster carer. And when we think about children's experience of trauma in the context of a relationship, it impacts on the child's sense of attachment, their stability, their sense of self and their safety. And I'm particularly interested in this area because there's so much scope for creating change and there's so much hope for children that their lives can and will feel better for them. There's so much that we can do to support them and their important people. So in terms of the children that you work with, like how does this complex developmental trauma show itself in their lives? The the children that we're working with at the moment at the Australian Childhood Foundation um, had exposure to family violence or may live in out-of-home care. So they might live in a kinship care placement or live in foster care or in residential care. So their experiences have been quite profound in terms of their experience of trauma. What we're really noticing is the impact on children's brain development as a result of exposure to trauma. That's both being in utero, in infancy, early childhood and childhood. And what we're really interested in is how chronic stress can impact on children's brain development. And that means that when children are in environments that they feel threatened, then they will continue to wire their brain in a way that predicts threat. And then we see children's behaviour really impacted by their expectation of threat. Yeah. And so what would we notice about children's behaviour that would have us perhaps beginning to think that complex developmental trauma is kind of implicated in that behaviour? And that's a great question. We can see the impact of complex developmental trauma in a multitude of ways, both in brain development and in behaviour. 
if I start with what behaviour might look like, there's a huge scope of how a child might show their experience of trauma. It might be by using really big behaviours like physical aggression, kicking, punching, biting, yelling. It might be through behaviours that show more of an internal collapse, like an inability to, to concentrate in class, zoning out, disassociating, in having troubles with toileting, having toileting accidents and so on. And it might show behaviours that show us that children don't feel safe unless they're very, very aligned to adults in terms of this, what we call fawning behaviour and really wanting to please the adult that is looking after them in an attempt to stay safe. In terms of the, the brain development, depending at what stage the developmental trauma occurred, whether it be in utero, in infancy, early childhood or childhood, we can see real impacts on the child's brainstem, their limbic system and their cognition. And we know through the work of Bruce Perry that children who have chronic stress experience high levels of cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and that can impact on the child's neuronal pathways and the way that the brain wires itself to predict threat and increase threat. So we can see that a child's brain structure is impacted by chronic stress through trauma. And that means that as they develop, they'll take through those pathways into their, their behavior in, in later childhood and respond in the same ways as if they were still in threat. So these bring about challenging circumstances for children and families, and I guess for the practitioners too, that are engaging with these families and seeking to respond and, and support them. Broadly speaking then, Catherine, what do you think makes it possible for children to heal from complex trauma to be, or to be lessening its impacts in their lives? I think there's always possibility that people can and will feel better. So holding hope that people will feel better is incredibly important. And healing occurs within relationships and healing occurs within safe relationships. But for a child who's experienced complex developmental trauma, it's going to take many, many, many repetitions of an experience of a safe relationship before they start to allow themselves to believe that maybe this person is safe for me. So understanding the impact of developmental trauma is incredibly important. And many people that we support have very successfully used traditional methods of parenting with other children, or they may have had a very positive experience of a traditional parenting experience from their own parent or caregiver. However, for a child who's experienced complex developmental trauma, they need a different way of being parented, and we call it therapeutic parenting. If the adult or the, the caregiver or the parent who's supporting the child can be regulated themselves, notice the child's cues that the child may not be coping or maybe needs some extra support, and they respond in a way that is playful if that's appropriate. Sometimes playful is not appropriate because it might escalate or shame or embarrass the child, but in a way that is accepting, which is not saying that the behaviour is okay. It's saying that I accept you in the presentation that you are now and I, I accept who you are and that you are feeling these feelings. Curiosity about what might be happening for the child and empathy. If we can respond in these ways, that creates a situation where the child can start to feel safe and start to be co-regulated by the adult. 
So children with complex developmental trauma often haven't had positive experiences of co-regulation. They may not have been rocked or soothed or cooed to or held when they're an infant and they're the things that the child, the infant needs to feel safe. And so they may have missed out on those early experiences of safety and they're going to need those experiences of co-regulation of I see you, I accept you, I hear you, you're okay, I'm okay, as early as older children to create a new pathway in their relationship. Are they some of the other key ideas that really support you or underpin your work besides what you've mentioned? Yeah, what place do they play in your work? We're really interested in parents and caregivers' own experiences of being parented and what really worked well for them and perhaps what they would not take along with them in their parenting journey. Because if we understand their own attachment framework, then we can help them make sense of their attachment with their child that they're looking after. But we can see that therapeutic parenting does invoke a different response from children to traditional methods of parenting. You know, so a child who's experienced developmental trauma is unlikely to respond to punitive measures. They're unlikely to respond to rewards and punishment. They are more likely to respond to connection than correction. So when you're beginning to work with a child and family, what are your initial intentions? What are you initially wanting to bring forward in your work with them? In any therapeutic intervention, safety is paramount first. And that's safety in relationships as well as physical safety. You cannot have a therapeutic intervention without a felt sense of safety between the clinician and the young person or the child and their caregiver. We're really wanting to create a space where we can have open, dynamic conversations. We want to be able to share wisdom and have the parents' wisdom acknowledged as well as the child's wisdom. We really want to set up a space where there is collaboration and we we want to offer deep listening to the child The way that we work with children and young people is we recognise that children's language is through their behaviour and they will not necessarily tell us or maybe they can't tell us what they're thinking or feeling or what their experiences are because they often don't have words to tell us. They'll show us through their behaviour. So we're using play-based approaches to therapy. So we really need to help the parent or the caregiver understand why we're doing what we're doing and and helping them engage in play with the child in session or after session, depending on what's appropriate with the child. Because we recognise that we're only with the child one hour a week or one hour a fortnight. The rest of the time they're with their important adult. And we really need to resource the parent or the caregiver to play with the child and to connect with that child because the deeper that connection and the felt sense of safety between the carer and the child is what's going to create change. So we're really wanting to support the parent and the child to connect. So in in speaking with parents, do you sort of make your intentions for these things clear, do you, with them? Absolutely. One of the things about safety is predictability. And when a child has experienced trauma, we want to create a very deep sense of predictability of when we meet, we're going to be in this room and we're going to meet together for this long 
and these are the games that we might play together. And starting at, you know, 10-minute warnings, in 10 minutes we're going to say goodbye and finish up. And in five minutes we're going to finish up and so on. So we really want to create safety through predictability and transparency and really helping those important transitions and um, coming into session and exiting out of session as well. In your work with the family, like what are some of the understandings you're hoping that parents walk away with? We really understand that parents and caregivers are doing the best they can with the resources they have available to them at that moment. And we're really wanting to add to those resources. And we're really wanting to acknowledge the wisdom and experience and care for the child that the parent or caregiver has as, as a starting place. We're really wanting to build on hope on connection, we really need to focus on parents and carers' own sense of self-care. Parents and carers cannot offer co-regulation to children in the way that they need it if they're not regulated themselves. So they, we really need to encourage parents and carers to resource themselves first before they can focus on caring for their children. We really want to help parents and carers understand the trauma-based behaviours These are pain responses. They are not the child being naughty or manipulative. They're not the child being bad. They're not intentionally pushing the parents or carers' buttons, so to speak. The child is using pain-based behaviours because they're in pain. What difference are you hoping that understanding would make to how parents go about being with their child? The response will be completely different. And if we know that the child is in pain, we will see their behaviour in a completely different context. We're not going to see the child as being naughty or manipulative or trying to get us to have an anger-based response. We're going to see this child as trying to get their needs met. And that's going to resource us as adults to be able to respond differently. And we know that people can't possibly respond from a place of empathy and curiosity and acceptance all the time. But if we can look after ourselves enough that we can respond most times or more often than not from a place of empathy and curiosity and acceptance and playfulness, if it's appropriate, then that will become much more familiar and easy for us to do as adults. And that creates connection and relationships. And that's where healing happens. When parents have concerns about children's behaviour you know I guess some of the behaviours you mentioned are they what parents bring to their consultations with you these kind of concerns about behaviour is that correct? Yes very much so because these are really big behaviours that we're talking about and they're incredibly hard for parents to support and they're incredibly hard for children to experience so parents and carers will often come to us and say I want my child to stop doing x y or z and can you please, you know, do therapy and and then they'll be different. What we try to help people understand is that the behaviours that the child is using kept them safe when they were experiencing the trauma and that those behaviours were very effective in helping them survive the trauma. The child might then be in an environment where that same risk to their safety doesn't exist but the brain cannot possibly shut off those really adaptive, clever behaviours. And any sense of threat or risk will invite those behaviours to come back. And they look 
like really big behaviors and they're incredibly hard for the parent or carer to manage. And the child is not going to respond to traditional parenting techniques like timeout or punishment or reward because the child is responding to trauma. They're trying to survive. Their brain can't tell the difference between threat because they were told no to threat when they're experiencing abuse. So helping a parent or a carer to understand that these behaviours are trauma behaviours and then the parent or carer can respond in a different way to help the child feel safer. In terms of the parent's responses to the big behaviours, like these different ways of responding, do you introduce parents to some other ways of responding? We do, and it comes back to therapeutic parenting and the PACE model by Dan Hughes. We really encourage parents and carers and adults to respond with PACE, which is playful, acceptance, curiosity, and empathy. And that's really, really hard. When a child is offering an adult a very big behaviour, the adult is going to want to respond with anger or discipline. That's very, very natural. However, the child is showing us a pain-based behaviour and for them to feel safe, we as adults need to respond in a regulated, peaceful way. And it's important to remember that pace is a framework and adults need to be kind to themselves as well with their expectations because we can't possibly always get it right. And if we don't get it right, it's been able to acknowledge, hey, I wasn't very kind then. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to try that again. You mentioned how this is a complex area, and I guess one of the complexities relates to the extent to which it's important to differentiate between the impacts of trauma on children's lives, on their behaviour, as well as various uh, labels or diagnoses that children might be given. I'm thinking of you know, ADHD or ODD, autism, probably a whole raft of others as well. How important is it to differentiate between these things from a practitioner's perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. I think diagnosis can be incredibly useful for helping obtain extra funding or resourcing or interventions. With a diagnosis, children um, may be eligible for support through the NDIS. They may benefit from medical intervention, which would be discussed with a paediatrician. We do see that for many of the children that we work with who have had an experience of complex developmental trauma, they might also bring with them diagnosis of autism or ODD or ADHD. And the way that we look at it is we are responding to the child. We are responding to the child's behaviour rather than responding to the diagnosis. With ADHD, the symptoms of inattention or not listening or disassociation or not being able to follow instructions or being impulsive or looking disruptive are all symptoms of complex developmental trauma. With autism, having difficulties in relationships or having difficulties in forming relationships or reciprocating relationships or having a blunted affect or being sensitive to environmental triggers or having a strong need for routine are all symptoms of developmental trauma. And across all of these diagnoses, there's a difficulty in taking turns and sometimes some repetitive behaviours. And so it's incredibly complex because developmental trauma can look like all these other medical conditions. 
it's not to say that a child with a diagnosis of ADHD doesn't have ADHD because they've got developmental trauma. It means it's complex and all things need to be considered. When you said you're responding to the child's behaviour, not the diagnosis. Mm. So when you have a child in front of you, what you discern in terms of the child's behaviour, whether it's in account of ADHD or developmental trauma or maybe intersection of those, to what extent does it go about influencing how you go about working with the child? It helps us understand the context of, of the child's life. We want to know what it's like for the child. So it might help us understand the funding supports the child might need, or it might help us understand the impact of medication. It might help us use language with the school or with the parent. However, we want to know what does that mean for the child? What is the child's experience of um, having so much energy that they need to move their body all the time? What's that like? And and how do we connect with that experience? Because in the connection of the relationship is where the child feels safe. So it's very important to understand the child's history and work within a system where medication or diagnosis is incredibly important. And we do want to work with the child and their important adults because the child doesn't live in isolation. So we do want to understand how the medical practitioner perceives what's happening for the child. We want to know how the parent perceives what's happening to the child. We want to know what the early childhood educator perceives. We want to know everything because children don't exist in isolation and and we need to be supporting their important system. But I want to know what it's like for the child. That's how I'd make sense of it. Thank you for that. That's really important messages, I think, for us all. Catherine, I'm thinking about children who may be experiencing a real sense of shame on account of what they've been through. What are some important considerations in working with children and responding to that shame? That's a really important question. Thank you. When we experience shame, we feel that we are bad. So blame is I've done something bad. Shame is I am bad. And children who have complex developmental trauma will often have experiences of shame that is internalised that I am bad. And shame can be a response to many, many different um, experiences. It might be being told off at school or it might be not performing well or it might be being given a compliment. Some children who have had significant developmental trauma aren't able to tolerate positive feedback and will invoke a shame response. Um, And shame is internalised as I am bad. And then the child will show their distress through their big behaviours. And they will try to push away these really distressing internalised feelings of shame through what we call the shield of shame. And what we'll often see children doing is lying, blaming, minimising or experiencing rage. And what they're trying to do is push away these feelings of deep shame that I'm a bad child. So a child might push over another child in the playground and teacher says, you know, why would you do that? The child experiences shame and they say, I didn't. Even though the teacher has just seen them, that is a shame response. And going back to using pace of being accepting, being curious, being empathic, might be like, oh, I wonder what happened there. What do you think happened? Or the child might minimise and say, I didn't push them, they fell over. 
or they'll try to deflect or the child mm -hmm. might experience a real rage response where they start kicking or punching the teacher. This is a shame response. The child is experiencing an internal state, which is I am bad. It's incredibly painful for children. Going immediately to correcting the behaviour is not going to resolve the issue. And I was saying, that's it, you're in timeout, you're suspended or this is happening or you're not going to the party on the weekend. That is going to increase the feelings of shame. The child needs to experience connection before correction. It doesn't mean that the behaviour doesn't have consequences. It means you slow down the process so you can connect with them using the PACE framework and then when the child is regulated, then you can talk about natural consequences for the behaviour. Well, Catherine, I think that brings us to the end of our conversation today. Thanks so much for bringing your practice knowledge and skills and compassion, really, for children and families that you work with that have been through very difficult times. Yeah, I've really valued hearing about your insights, so thanks so much for contributing to our understanding of these things. And we'll be providing some links in the show notes to some of the resources that Catherine's mentioned as well as some other things too. So, yeah, thanks so much, Catherine, once again. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.